Hebrews chapter 12, where we have been studying this portion, we hope to finish today, verses, well, we'll actually be putting in 23 to 29 today, but to establish the connection, we are going to be reading from verse 18, so we'll read once again verses 18 through 29. The writer, remember now, is encouraging discouraged, persecuted believers to hold on to Christ, to not cast away their confidence in him. He says this, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to pass to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, For if they did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates removal of the things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. The writer, as we said, had been addressing Jewish believers, some of whom were on the verge of returning to Judaism, returning to the old Mosaic covenant with its rituals, with its sacrifices, because, as we said, they were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. And as a way of dissuading these discouraged Christians from casting away their confidence in Christ, he lays before them the wide gaping contrast between the old covenant represented by Mount Sinai and the new covenant represented by Mount Zion, the city of the living God. He would have them understand that by virtue of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as their mediator, as their redeemer, theirs is not a state of affairs like that of ancient Israel, 
approaching the fiery, dreadful terror of Mount Sinai. In contrast to Sinai that peels forth the threat of death demanding distance from the holy and righteous God of heaven, Mount Zion, which speaks of the surpassing glories of the new covenant, is that city to which the writer says, They have come, verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. And the grammar that's used there suggests that this is a realized fact. The truth is that even though as Christians we are not yet in heaven in the futuristic sense, from the standpoint of the word of God, we are presently there in spirit, because according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, God, having made us alive together with Christ, Paul says, raised us up and made us sit together with him in heavenly places in Christ. And hence, as Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20 tells us, our citizenship is in heaven. Now, this is something that It's not easy to wrap our minds around, and we must not think of this as make-believe. From the standpoint of the Word of God, we are, in spirit, in principle, there already in Mount Zion, in heaven, enjoying the presence of God. And it's a paradox because, as the writer will go on to say in Hebrews chapter 13, And verse 14, we are looking for a city. We are looking for the heavenly kingdom. So it is this, the point is this, that as Christians, we live in the the tension of what the late British scholar C.H. Dodd describes as the tension between the already and the not yet. Already we are in heaven, seated with Christ, and yet we are looking forward to heaven. And so under the new covenant, believers, the writer says, have come not to an earthly mountain that's fearfully unapproachable, but right within the glorious, accessible presence of God, we are come as believers in Jesus Christ. In terms of the blessings into which they have come, as we saw last time, they have come, secondly, to an innumerable company of angels in festal gathering, verse 22. Now, in the Old Testament and even the New Testament, you will find there are times when people had encounter with angels, sometimes even one angel, and what was the response? Terror, dread. And what God is saying here is this, that all because of Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, we have not come to angels in order to be terrified. In fact, there in heaven we join the host of heaven, the host of angels in festal gathering. Here, believers in Christ, join them in joyful, exuberant praise to God. Then a third covenant, a third blessing, a third new covenant blessings into which believers in Christ have come, again found in verse 23, says you have come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. 
We, my friends, are members of this church, Reformed Baptist Church of Lafayette, but here's the truth, as I pointed out some time ago, you know this very well. It's possible to have your name on a church roll. It's possible to be a member of this church and not be a member of the true church of the firstborn that is registered in heaven. And so I would ask the question once again, do you know that your name is in fact written in the Lamb's Book of Life, registered in heaven. Are you part of the church of the firstborn? And that is something to think about. And then fourthly, fourth new covenant blessing afforded to believers in Christ. Again, verse 23, the C part of verse 23, the writer says that you have come to God, the judge of all. We come to God not in fearful, cowardly, servile dread. We come to God even though he's judged. We come to him freely. We come to him confidently. Why? Because Jesus Christ, our mediator, our high priest, has made the way of access for us to enter into the awesome, majestic presence of the high and holy God of heaven. Recall such passages as Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, which speaks of our drawing near to the throne of grace with confidence. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, we draw near to God through Christ since he always lives to make intercession for us. Now, this morning, we pick up at verse 23, the deep part of verse 23 where the writer informs us of a fifth blessing, a fifth new covenant blessings, which as believers in Christ we have and to which we have come. He says there in the, in the, in the deep part of verse 23, and you are come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Who is he referring to here? He's referring to... Believers who have died in Christ. And the truth the writer would have us understand here is that not only do believers in Christ come to the living God, the judge of all, but they have come as well to those believers who have departed this life to be with the Lord in heaven. Now, we mustn't think of that as some kind of spooky here we are with deceased people. No, no, no. The, 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 the writer is saying here that we have come actually in spirit by virtue of what Christ has done. We are already in heaven in the presence of these spirits, these departed souls, these departed spirits who have gone on to be with the Lord. And suggested here is that there's a mystical bond which we as Christians share with the saints in heaven. In fact, we sing that in that great Christian hymn of the church. The church is one foundation. We sing, yet she on earth hath union with God the three in one and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. You have come, says the author, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And here is one of those references in scripture which underscore the fact that human beings are possessed of not just body, but spirit. And that 
at death, the spirit lives on into eternity. The word of God teaches in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8, as far as Christians are concerned, believers in Christ are concerned, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And that was why, as he was being stoned, you'll remember, Philip could call out to the Lord to receive his spirit, Acts chapter 7 and verse 59. Now we have to ask this question, in what sense have the spirits of the righteous in heaven been perfected, as indicated here in verse 23? And We could say this, first of all, that they have been perfected through the redeeming sacrifice of Christ Remember what the writer said in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14, For by a single offering, he, that is Christ, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. They are in heaven right now, even though they are without their bodies, they are in the presence of the Lord, they have been perfected, those spirits have been perfected, because to begin with, in time here on earth, they were perfected by the offering of the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, they have been perfected in the sense that at death they have attained to the end of their race and taken to glory through Jesus Christ, the author and finisher, the author, the perfecter of their faith, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. And then thirdly, the spirits of the righteous have been perfected in that they have been once for all freed, not only from the dominion and defilement of sin, but from the very presence of sin. Here's the point. When we die as Christians, we go to heaven. Here's the wonderful news. We stop sinning. We stop being tempted. We are, we have been perfected to the point where we are no longer capable of sinning. What a glory that must be. Imagine you and I battle. We battle wrong thoughts. We are susceptible to sin. We fall in sin. We feel miserable. It bothers us. And imagine what it will be in the presence of God when we, having completed our course, we have been removed entirely, not just from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, but from the very presence of sin. Well, what do we make of all this? The fact that as Christians, death is not a matter of gloom and doom. Death is not a matter of gloom and doom. Death is not something that we are going to be crying incessantly about. It is not something that is terrifying for the child of God. Why? Because the believer leaves this life and the believer is presently, though dead, as far as this world is concerned, is there in the presence of God and of the holy angels enjoying the presence, the glorious festal presence of God in heaven. And then look at what he says, sixthly, under the new covenant, a blessing to which recipients of the epistle, and by extension you and I, have come, is this, verse 24, we have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. The word mediator conveys the idea of a middleman. 
And a mediator between God and man, a middleman, was necessary between God and man for the simple reason that God is infinitely holy. God is absolutely pure. He cannot stand to look upon evil. And we, by contrast, as sinners, are utterly sinful, utterly polluted, utterly filthy to stand in his sight on our own. Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, the word of God teaches, because he it was who shed his blood so as to establish this covenant. Luke chapter 22 and verse 20. By virtue of his role as mediator between God and man, he, through his shed blood, secured reconciliation between God and man. And if you notice how he refers to the Lord here, he refers to him not as Christ. He did not say you have come to Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. He did not say you have come to the Lord of the mediator of the new covenant. And there's a reason for that. He says specifically, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. You say, what's so significant about that? You see, the name Jesus by which he is referred to here in verse 24 calls attention to his suffering, his death, his resurrection, whereby he functions as a savior and redeemer. You will call his name Jesus for he shall what? Save his people from their sins. And the writer singles out the Lord here in his capacity as savior, referring to him as Jesus, to underscore the fact that he, as our mediator, he, as our high priest, died for our sins, becoming, at the same time, the sacrifice for our sins before God. And in consequence of his redemptive suffering and death, he alone, he is the sole bona fide mediator there is between God and man. Listen. The one mediator there is between God and man is not Mary. It's not Mary. I'm also going to say this without wanting to make trouble. It's not some local priest. It's not the Pope. In fact, I'm going to make another statement, and it's not intended to be controversial. This is a veritable fact. It is blasphemy to take the place of Jesus, the one mediator there is between God and man. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. In fact, by his own admission, our Lord Jesus declared that he is the only mediator there is between God and man because he declared in John 14, verse 6, he says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. 
If a person is going to be saved, my friends, it's not going to be through Hare Krishna. It's not going to be through Allah. It's not going to be through some world figure. It is going to be through the person, the divinely appointed mediator and high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, even as the writer speaks of Christ, the mediator of the new covenant to which we have come as Christians, he calls attention, notice in the B part of verse 24, he calls attention to his shed blood, referring to it as the sprinkled blood. And the imagery of the sprinkled blood recalls that occasion when, after God had established covenant with Israel, making them his people. Remember what Moses did? Moses, after he killed an ox, he took the blood of the animal, the oxen, which he had sacrificed, and what did he do with it? He sprinkled the people with the blood, having sprinkled the altar, he then sprinkled the people with the remainder of the blood after reading the book of the covenant. You'll see that in Exodus 24, verses 5 through 8. And what the writer is saying here, by extension, is that Jesus Christ, believers in Jesus Christ, have been sprinkled with his blood. In fact, the Apostle Peter says that very clearly in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, we have been sprinkled by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in this sense that believers are said to come to his sprinkled blood. This sprinkled blood, according to the last clause of verse 24, speaks of a, speaks, he says, a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, what in the world does he mean by that? The blood, the sprinkled blood of Christ, speaks a better word than that of Abel. The reference of the blood of Abel, speaking, takes us back to Genesis chapter 4. You remember after Cain maliciously killed him out of envy because God, of course, had accepted Abel's offering, rejected his offering. Cain killed him. And God, you remember, in confronting Cain, told him in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, here's what God said to Cain. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now, if you look at a parallel passage, not so much a parallel passage, but a parallel idea. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, you recall the apostle John envisioned under the altar the souls of those who were beheaded for the gospel of Christ. They were martyred. And there under the altar, those believers, those martyrs, what were they doing under the altar? The word of God tells us they were crying out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge your blood on those who dwell on the earth? Abel would have been there as well. And while scripture does not explicitly state the content of Abel's cry implicit in the text is a suggestion that Abel's blood was crying out for vindication, for vengeance. It was crying out for the justice and righteousness of God to deal with his brother. 
Now, the writer says, the blood of Christ speaks a better word. And the sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, in that whereas Abel's blood cried for vengeance, the sprinkled blood of Jesus calls for mercy and forgiveness. In fact, when he was on the cross, you remember, Luke chapter 23, even as he was being ill-treated by his persecutors, by his tormentors, Jesus, Luke tells us, and the tense in the Greek suggests this, he kept on praying, he kept on saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The blood of Abel cries, no doubt, for the fury of God's vengeance. The blood of Christ speaks forgiveness. It speaks reconciliation between a holy God and sinful men and women. In fact, Bible commentator Simon Kiss the Master and William Hendrickson put it as follows. It says this, quote, The blood of Abel called for revenge, and God placed a curse upon Cain for killing his brother Abel. The blood of Christ removed the curse placed upon fallen man and effected reconciliation and peace between God and man. Abel's blood is the blood of a martyr that evokes revenge. The blood of Jesus is the blood of the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. End quote. Beloved, the blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel because whereas the blood of Abel speaks words of condemnation and guilt, the blood of Jesus speaks words of cleansing and grace. Whereas Abel's blood speaks of retribution, the blood of Jesus speaks of redemption. It speaks of reconciliation. And so based on verses 18 through 24, based on these verses, the thrust of the writer to the Hebrews is this, that given all of these blessed, glorious realities of the new covenant, why then would you want to go back to Sinai? Why then would you want to go back to Mount Sinai with its threats, with its terrors, with its announcement of distance from a holy God? Why would you want to go back to that arrangement? He's saying to them that to forsake Christ and go back to the Mosaic Covenant is to effectively come under the threats and terrors of Mount Sinai. It is to be exposed to divine wrath. It is to come before the fiery holiness of God without the protection, without the coverage of a mediator, a redeemer such as you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, let me say here by way of warning, and here's the message of this text, those who would be do-gooders, those who would look to their religiosity, those who would trust in their good works in order to get them into heaven, what the word of God is suggesting is this, you are exposing yourself to the terror of God's wrath. Because here's the point, it's not that there's anything wrong with, nothing was wrong with Mount Sinai. 
Mount Sinai displayed the holiness of God. Mount Sinai displayed the glory of God. But what was the problem? The problem was not Mount Sinai. The problem was sinful man. The problem was this. And the problem continues to be this. That outside of Jesus Christ, our mediator, our high priest, the sacrifice for our sins, you and I do not have any talk before God. The person who would look to their righteousness to get them to heaven, they're on their own. And that's a dreadful condition. That's a dreadful situation. The writer is saying here that to go back to Sinai, to go back to the works of the Mosaic law, is to spell, that spells what? Disaster. It spells death. He's urging his readers then to turn from trusting in the Mosaic law to trust completely in Christ, to trust in his perfect work of redemption or face eternal judgment. And that's the message to you who are not saved. To what are you looking to save you? Are you looking to baptism? Are you looking to communion? Are you looking to church membership? Are you looking to some prayer some religious exercise, all of these things, let me say this, they do more to provoke God than anything else because here's the truth. Whenever we look to anything or anyone other than Christ, we are actually doing what? Despite insult to the grace of God. That's what the writer of the Hebrews has been warning about. And this naturally leads then to the concluding charge in verses 25 through 29. So look at how the writer then logically, well, all that he has said logically flows into this warning he's about to give them. Beginning with verse 25, here's what he says. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. In light of these blessings, in light of these warnings, in light of the fact of what Mount Sinai represents, and in light of the fact of the glories that you have in Christ, see to it then that you do not refuse him who is speaking. And if you look at the passage, he uses the pronoun him. Is it about three times? And the question is, to whom is the pronoun him referring? Is it referring to, and I'm going to just tell you, it is referring him who is speaking, to whom is that referring? It's referring to God in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. You say, how do we know that? Go back to Roman, to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, because there, in the very opening section of the epistle, the writer says this, that in these last days, whereas God used to speak in time past through the Father's and the fathers and prophets in many ways, in different portions. In these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son. He, the Son of God, is the one who continues to speak by way of warning from heaven. How is he doing that? He's doing that through the gospel. He's doing that through the preaching of the word. Even now, Christ is speaking from heaven, even as his word is being taught. 
And the need to guard against refusing Christ is set against the backdrop of the warning that's found in the next clause. Here's what he says. For if they, and who is the they referring to? The Exodus generation, the people back in the Old Testament, ancient Israel. He says, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth. Stop there. Who is the him who warned them on earth? Moses. Of course, God through Moses was warning them. He says this much less. If Moses warned on earth and they did not escape the judgment of God, he says much less will we escape if we refuse him, that is Christ, who is speaking from heaven. Now, here in verse 25, the author uses a rhetorical device in which he argues from the lesser to the greater. His statement implicitly makes this point that if under the old covenant those who refused to listen to the warning of God through Moses were not spared divine judgment, then most certainly there will be no escaping judgment for those under the new covenant who have the living Christ speaking to them. What a sobering warning we have here. And such warning is not, it's not entirely new on the part of the writer because the writer has been giving this kind of warning throughout the epistle. You remember in Hebrews chapter 2 verses 1, 1 to 3, he had similarly warned, listen to his warning. He says, therefore, we must pay closer attention to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For... If the word spoken by angels was binding and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? He said very much the same thing in Hebrews 10, 28, 29. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much Worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? You know what he's saying in all of these warnings? In all of these warnings, the writer is making this point that with greater revelation, with greater light from God comes greater responsibility to God. The more we are exposed to the truth of the gospel, the more you hear of the gospel and fail to respond by acknowledging and embracing Christ as Savior, it is the greater and more severe your judgment is going to be. Let me ask this morning once again, whether here or listening by way of Zoom, what have you done with what you have heard from the gospel? You say, I've not heard anything. Really? Because the message of the gospel goes forth every time the word of God is being opened. And if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. That the wages of sin is death. It is appointed unto man once to die, but after this a judgment. That the only way of escape there is, is through the Redeemer, the Mediator, the High Priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Have you trusted him?
And then the writer is suggesting through these warnings that to fail to give due proper regard to the word of God is to effectively refuse and reject the son of God himself. See that you don't refuse him who is speaking. And there are many ways in which we can refuse to hear him. Those who are not saved, there are many ways in which you can refuse to hear him. You can rest complacently in your perceived goodness. You can say, oh, that what the preacher is saying, you know, I've heard that time and again. It doesn't really make sense. You're refusing him who is speaking. You're refusing him who is speaking when you're stifling the voice of conviction. And that is very, very serious. Now, with a flashback to the appearance of God and Mount Sinai, the writer, notice what he does in verse 26. He comments, at that time, his voice shook the earth. His voice shook the earth. Reference here is to Exodus 19, 18, which records that the whole mountain trembled greatly. That was at the event of Sinai, when God made his appearance on Sinai. The earth shook, the mountains trembled greatly. In the words of Psalm 68, verse 8, the earth quaked before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. And what God is saying here is that he's going to shake this world again. He's going to shake this world again. And when is he going to do that? He's going to do that in the final judgment. And the word of God tells us, he says here in our text, that so that everything that is created, everything that is physical, everything that is not of God's kingdom is going to be shaken and moved out of the way. You know what that tells me, beloved, is this. That since it is only God's kingdom that will survive the shaking, you and I had better be sure that what we are building on is in fact God's kingdom. That we are in fact building on Christ and not on shifting sand. Because here's the point. If we are not building on Christ, if we have not Christ as Lord and Savior, we are as Jesus says in Matthew 24, Matthew 7, 24 through 27, he says, The one who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them is like the man who built his house upon sand. The rain came, the torrent came, and he says, Great was the fall of that house. Why? Because it was built really on nothing. Let me say this. If you have, if you have a good education... If you have a fantastic home, fantastic family, and you have not Christ, you are building on shifting sand. And that is going to crumble. That is going to disappoint. And in the end, that will spell nothing but disaster and judgment. Do you know him? In light of the blessed and glorious reality of this kingdom that we are promised, this kingdom that is unshakable. As we draw to a close this morning, the question is, how then should that impact our lives in the here and now? He says, verse 28, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, 
And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Christians are headed for a kingdom that is unshakable, a kingdom that's immovable. That kingdom they already begin to participate in, that kingdom they already begin to enjoy, because that kingdom is embodied in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ resident within them. What should be our response to this kingdom that we are receiving and we are going to receive when we enter glory? Here we see number one, always should be a response, verse 28, of gratitude to God. Gratitude to God. He says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom And the very fact that we receive this kingdom rules out any idea of merit. It rules out any idea of deservingness. We have received it. How did we receive it? We received it by faith. We received it all because of the grace of God. We did not work for it. God in grace made us participants in his kingdom is in his glory. Second, in view of the glorious prospect of an unshakable kingdom, ours should be the response of worship. Worship. Because notice the writer continues, thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. We're to offer God worship, but not just any kind of worship, because notice he qualifies here the kind of worship that God must receive. We're not left in the dark as of the kind of worship we're to render to God. He demands, first of all, he tells us acceptable worship. You say, what's that? That is worship that he himself has prescribed. Worship that's based on those guidelines of his word outlining how he's to be approached. And one of the ways we find that he's to be approached, in fact, the prime way in which he is to be approached, he will not be approached outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why, as we have often said, the unsaved man cannot truly worship Why? Because not until we have Christ, not until Christ is resident in our hearts and lives, that we can approach a holy and righteous God. And then secondly, God demands of us reverential worship. He demands of us reverential worship. This is a kind of worship that recognizes and acknowledges him as the most high and holy God. It is worship that is focused on glorifying him, that is focused on pleasing him. Worship that recognizes him as the God who is not to be trifled with nor taken for granted. That is reverential worship. Look at the warning with which he closes, verse 29. Why should we worship God acceptably and reverently in view of his grace in making us worthy participants of this kingdom, in making us participants of this kingdom? He says, for our God is a consuming fire. 
Our God is a consuming fire. The words our God hints at the close personal relationship which he has with his people, our God. We can say our God, why? Through Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said when he came back from the dead to Mary. He says, I ascend to my Father and to your Father. Our God speaks of what? Communion with God, fellowship with God. But notice... While we have this close relationship with God, this close personal relationship with him, on account of Christ our mediator, we need to remember always that he's a consuming fire. He's not to be toyed with. The consuming fire speaks of the fire of his holiness. The fire of his holiness that is intolerant of all that's sinful, of all that's trifling in his presence and God will not have us being over familiar with him. There's a lot of worship today, so-called, in which Jesus is my body, Jesus is my friend. And there's nothing of reverence for God. Let me say this. He's our father, he's our friend, he's our brother. But listen, he's not our playmate. He is the living God. He's to be worshipped, he's to be reverenced as God Almighty. The truth is, gracious a God that he is, he'll nevertheless break out against all that offends his holiness. What great blessings we have under the new covenant. We come not to some mountain where we have to stand back in terror and in dread, but we have come to Mount Zion. We have come to the glories of heaven. We have come not to a situation of gloom, but we have come to a situation of fellowship, of joy, of praise, of celebration in the presence of the holy, righteous God of heaven, all because of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. To this the church should say, praise God. If you are not saved, you should come to him to this day and be saved. What a fitting way 